Welcome, and thanks for tuning in today. This is I've Heard That Song Before, and I'm your host, Joe Hunter. And every week we invite a guest into the studio and we examine a song from the Great American Songbook. And this week in the studio, our guest is George Carr. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me. George, you've chosen one of the all-time classic American standard, and that would be Kurt Weill and Maxwell Anderson's September Song. Yes, I turned on to this song as a kid. As a teenager, I was a trombonist. I still am, and I've been listening to September Song for 20 years now. Well, George, as you mentioned, you are a trombone player, but you also have a day job, don't you? Would you like (laughs) to tell us about that? Sure. I finished music school and decided that living as a musician was not going to give me the lifestyle that I really wanted. So I went to law school, and I've now been practicing as a lawyer for almost 10 years. And And I enjoy that very much to the extent that it supports my music hobby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're very happy to have you in studio today and to examine this great, great tune. Let's talk a little bit about the September song. This tune came from a 1938 musical entitled Knickerbocker Holiday. And as we mentioned earlier, the lyrics were by American poet Maxwell Anderson, and the music is by Kurt Weill. And you were telling me something interesting about this song uh, before we started taping. Well, Maxwell Anderson was arguably at the peak of his career. He had just won a Pulitzer in 1933 for another play. And he was very interested in, to the extent his politics permitted it, trying to be more commercially successful. And he thought that musical theater would be a way to reach larger audiences and get into a more mainstream position. At the same time, Kurt Weill, who had only been in the United States for two or three years was interested in doing stage musicals, and so they ended up with a very functional collaboration on this show. And Weil had escaped Nazi Germany. That's correct. He was a popular songwriter and composer and performer in Germany, very well known for the Three Penny Opera from the late 20s. He escaped Germany in 1933, bounced around Europe for a couple of years, and landed in the States in 35 or 36, and had not done a lot of American work before writing this show. One of the other interesting things about Weil is that he consciously tried to reject his German training. He'd been trained in the Berlin conservatories and had worked quite a bit as both a classical musician and as a popular musician. And when he came to America and decided to settle in the United States, which is, I believe, where he eventually died, he decided consciously to become an American musician. And he studied American song forms, and he studied American popular music and folk music. With that said, I find this song to be one of the most... Oh, theatrical, really melodramatic American standards. The song was originally written for a guy named Walter Houston, an actor who came to Vile and said, I need this big song for the show, but he really wasn't a singer. (laughs) That's correct. The show revolves around this love triangle where there's a young couple in love and the boy in love fights with the girl's father. And brought in to mediate the dispute is an older politician who himself promptly falls in love with the young girl. And that politician is played by Walter Houston. And so the song's theme is based on how there can still be love between people in different generations and how this older man still hopes that he can be attractive to a younger woman. So I think in part because of that, they structured this so that it would be sort of the emotional climax of the first act where Houston would have a sympathetic moment before the second act returns with a bunch of dark political allegory and complex commentary on the state of American society in the late 1930s. This is the only hit that emerged from that show, I believe. I'm pretty sure of that, yeah. Well, why don't we listen to our first rendition of September Song by Kurt Vile and Maxwell Anderson. I thought we would listen to something from what I consider to be one of the classic all-time records, an album made in 1961, the great jazz pianist George Shearing and the incomparable vocalist and jazz pianist Nat Cole. This was a collaboration they made on Capitol Records, came out in 1961, and this is actually the opening song from this album. 
Nat Cole, and George Shearing. So why don't we give a listen to Kurt Vile and Maxwell Anderson's September song. Nat Cole and George Shearing performing September Song by Kurt Vile and Maxwell Anderson. What a great rendition of that song. Huh? Yeah, really beautiful version. We should have mentioned at the outset that the arrangement on that tune was by Ralph Carmichael. One of the great studio writers yeah. from that era. A guy who collaborated quite a lot with George Shearing yes. in the 50s. Really did some nice things on the string writing there. It's very interesting that there's only a tiny window when that record could have come out because a couple of years later, the Beatles would hit and Capitol Records would turn from a jazz label into a pop label. And a couple of years before, there probably wasn't enough of a relatively educated middle-class audience to really dig in on a record of standards with a piano and singer presented with this kind of lush string background. And in the liner notes, Shearing talks about what an absolute joy it was to work with Nat Cole. And he was so happy when it was reissued on CD because he says his own copy yeah. he wore out. Yeah, I'm not surprised. That's <laughs> a great record. It was really one of George Shearing's favorite collaborations. 
All right, that was our first rendition of this classic American tune, September Song by Kurt Vile and Maxwell Anderson. And we just finished listening to a version by Nat Cole and George Shearing. And up next, we're going to hear something from one of the great interpreters of song, and that, of course, would be Frank Sinatra. What's interesting about Frank is that he began his career as a sideman in a trombone band, singing as a background singer and a featured stand-up singer with the Tommy Dorsey band. And for his entire career, Frank testified that he learned a lot about his musical technique and about his breathing technique from Tommy Dorsey, who trombonists recognized was a real virtuoso on the instrument, even though a lot of his commercial recordings really didn't feature a lot of technical playing. Yeah, Sinatra used to watch Dorsey and try to mimic his breathing. Exactly. Dorsey had amazing breath control, and there have actually been quite a bit of scholarly articles about Dorsey's recordings and how he consciously tried to break up traditional phrase lengths in order to really maximize his emotional impact on the trombone. He's a really, really gifted player, and Frank, as I said, told the stories for decades that he learned a lot of what was going on from how Tommy Dorsey breathed and how he phrased his songs. Well, why don't we listen to an example of some of these great lessons that Frank learned from Dorsey. And George, we finally get to hear the verse to this great song. Yeah, it's often not done. And in fact, a couple of recordings I have, it's done in simply one chorus. Hmm. You know, it's just a two-minute recording. This is from a Capitol release from the late 50s entitled Point of Return, arrangement by Axel Sturtle. This is Frank Sinatra singing Maxwell Anderson's and Kurt Vile's September song. Another lush string introduction. When I was a young man courting the girls I played me a waiting game If a maid refused me with tossing curls I let the old earth take a couple of wolves And this time came around as she came my way As time came around she came Oh, it's a long, long time From May to December But the days grow short September When the autumn weather Turns the leaves to flame One hasn't got time For the September 
spend these few precious days I'll spend with you These precious days I'll spend with you And that was Frank Sinatra singing Kurt Vile's September song. You know, George, this tune has such a theatrical, emotional arc. Yeah, that's a good point. It really must be an arranger's dream song. It's so theatrical. You have that drama of that second section, you know, as the days dwindle by, precious through those climbing, diminished chords. I mean, it just... Right, and the little short phrases, September, November, there's a lot of space in between Mm -hmm. each small phrase for the arranger to really fill in and be lush or be ornamented in between each phrase. Right, and it starts on that sort of quiet, reflective, emotional point. Right. And then climbing to this... Right, a sort of desperate plea that just because I'm coming to the end of my days doesn't mean that I can't feel love. We've heard Ralph Carmichael's take on it, and then to hear Axel Sturtle. Yeah, really. And even though Frank was doing his best and did a really remarkably good job at adding a lot of tension and musical control to each phrase, you can see how the writer was also leaving space for sort of a non-singer or an amateur singer to play with the melody or be able to state it accurately. I mean, really tugs at the old heartstrings. Right. You, know? you want to be sympathetic with the protagonist. That's one of the reasons why it's become a standard. It's not the political commentary from the rest of the show. It's a pure statement of love and longing from an older man. And reflective. It's not your typical standard love song, really. I right. Mean, it's someone sort of reflecting on life, I think. Right. It's not, I love you, why don't you love me back? It's right. not, I wish you would love me, you know, any of the traditional mm. love song themes. It's much more sort of an introspective belief in, here's why I'm believing in love even at this point in my life. Exactly. We're now going to hear our first instrumental version of this classic American tune, George, you've selected a very interesting record. This is a Chet Baker instrumental version, and obviously it was recorded in New York. Unfortunately, we don't have the session date, but these are obviously all New York musicians. Yeah, my best guess is probably the mid to late 1950s, I think about 56 or 57, while Chet was still launching and 
it was relatively easy for him to go into the studio for a day and make a record that would then make everybody's money back. He was pretty popular at the time. This is kind of a one-off project for Riverside Records, as opposed to his usual contract with Pacific Jazz that lasted for most of the 50s. Of course, he's accompanied here by top, top New York yeah. jazz musicians. We got what, Paul Chambers from Miles Davis? Paul Chambers, mm-hmm. Kenny Burrell, and Connie Kay. It's a really top-flight group. Top, top, top. One of the interesting things about this, too, is that Chet, as you know, is a really weak music reader and oftentimes had to work things out on the piano or on the trumpet by ear. Never did figure out how to read a lead sheet or to read any kind of arranged music. So what you get from this version is a really sort of sparse, clean emotionally laden instrumental version. And we're going to get to hear the great jazz guitarist Kenny Burrell and a great example of why he was such a first call guy, wonderful accompanist and marvelous playing behind Chet's trumpet. Yeah. So why don't we listen to Chet Baker with Paul Chambers on bass, Kenny Burrell on guitar and Connie Kay on drums doing Kurt Vile's September song. And he's doing the verse. Right, he does the verse himself. The verse a second time. Switching it up.
Chet Baker performing Kurt Vile's September Song from a Riverside record from the late 50s with Paul Chambers and Connie Kay and, of course, the great Kenny Burrell doing some marvelous guitar work on yeah, it. Yeah, his playing on that is really wonderful, playing in the holes between Chet's various phrases. Now, it's interesting, too. I thought Chet really downplayed the drama of the bridge, the second part. He took it down. Right, you see a lot of the other singers, you know, reaching for that as the emotional climax, and Chet sort of took it back and became even more introspective with it. Very different. I was a little surprised by it. And, of course, he started right into a solo as soon as he came out of the bridge. Right. The weird thing about Chet is he's extremely emotionally charged, but didn't really have a lot of trumpet technique. He started as a guitarist and played great trumpet by the end of his career, but during a lot of these times in the 50s, he really took and a minimal approach is to much balance. More one of the reasons he was so favored on the West Coast set was that he was very minimalist and sort of a contrast to the Miles Davis brittle sound. So this is a good example of that. Oh, yeah. And now you've brought in a very interesting record by one of the great Renaissance men of popular right. music, Mel Torme. Yeah, Mel. And a collaboration with the Canadian trombonist, right, Rob McConnell? That's correct. Apparently, the story goes that Mel went to the store to buy a new hi-fi, and the demonstration album in the store was a Rob McConnell record <laughs> from Canada. And he was so jazzed by the record that he insisted on buying it. He got an import version from Canada and made a point of calling up Rob McConnell saying, I want to do a record with you. I really want to record. And as it happens, Rob McConnell was between record labels and Mel Torme had just signed a new deal with Concord Records. And so it became a perfect collaboration to kick off a new label representation. So what has turned out to be musically interesting about it is Rob McConnell wrote a great chart Mm -hmm. on September song for this record. As we mentioned earlier, this is a real arranger's dream, this song. There's such built-in drama, and Rob McConnell really has a field day with it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Rob, I mean, as you know, he's a tremendous world-class arranger, but oftentimes he'll joke that he's sitting up there in a cabin in the cold of Canada, and he's got nothing better to do than come up with creative versions on attractive standards, and this is one of them that I'm particularly partial to. Well, as a trombonist, right, because McConnell started out as a trombonist. Right. He plays and fronts his band playing trombone, although I don't believe there's a trombone solo in this song. Well, let's give a listen to this record by collaboration of Mel Torme and Rob McConnell doing Kurt Vile's September Song. When I was a young man courting the girls that played me a waiting game When a maid refused me with tossing curls I let the old earth take a couple of worlds and I plied and you can hear the trombone ornaments throughout there it's really tasty in lieu of pearls and as time went along she came Time went along, she came, but it's a long, long while from May to the same guitar background as Kenny was given.
for the waiting game. And the days dwindled down. The Rangers like to put a little rhythmic time behind this chunk of the tune. That a classy chart. Great chart. That was Mel Torme and Rob McConnell doing Kurt Vile's September song. A little bit of Gene Amaro on saxophone in the middle. There. Oh, that's who that was. Very nice sax solo there. And you commented about the rhythmic thing that Rob did under the... Right, when it gets to the sort of quasi-bridge, bridge. September, right, November, exactly. September, November. That's perfect because there's a sort of static quality to that section. Right, the vocal is very vague and sort of amorphous. And the harmony, too. You have right, that sort right. of really climbing, diminished chord. Right, it's a sort of static kind of harmony. And we heard that in the Chet Baker version also. You hear Paul Chambers giving a little rhythmic drive underneath mm-hmm. to spice up the tune. And as you mentioned, Rob really... Goes to town on the tune. With the song and the harmonies and really yeah. tried some very, very different reharmonizations, new chords to the right. song. A couple notable things about that. At the end of the verse, Mel actually sings the last phrase twice. Once in the original harmony and then again as an intro to the chorus. We haven't heard that in any previous version, that restated vocal material. 
And then, as I mentioned during the recording, the outro of the tune, while Mel is holding the same note for about 10 or 15 seconds, talk about breath control. Rob writes the entire verse, or the first phrase of the verse, as an outro to close Mm -hmm. the tune. What's the name of his Canadian group, Rob McConnell's group? It's called the Boss Brass. Boss Brass. This record's from 1986, and the band was active from, I believe, the mid-'70s until the late-'90s. And as you mentioned before, this record was on Concord? Yes, yes. Great album. It became a big hit, and they followed it up with a second collaboration called Velvet and Brass. Of course, Mel was a great arranger himself. So right. Mel, as you said, a true Renaissance man. Yeah. I've got clips of him drumming with Nat Cole, and he's a great writer. He's written and composed a lot of jazz and a lot of books. He's written his own autobiography and a number of other biographies. And of course, we can't forget Mel wrote one of the most famous Christmas songs of all time, That's The Christmas true. Song. An extremely popular and gifted songwriter Absolutely. As well. And George, we've had a lot of fun listening to some great renditions of Kurt Vile's September song. You've brought in some great versions of it. We listened to Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Chet Baker, and Mel Torme. All very nice. Mel Torme's version with Rob McConnell still remains my favorite just because it's so harmonically adventurous. The other arrangements were great and a beautiful sort of Hollywood studio ambiance, but Rob's writing there with those extended harmonies and the complex orchestrations with horns and flutes in the big band is the icing on the cake for me. Well, and as we mentioned earlier, that tune just is an arranger's dream, isn't it? There's so much to work with. Yeah, it sure is. There's a lot of good harmonies and great phrases. Well, every week we like to finish with a bonus tune for our guest, and today I've selected a track from great record that, George, you mentioned you hadn't heard before. This is a Sinatra and Ellington. Yeah, I remember Sinatra owned Reprise, and Ellington was his A&R man for a big chunk of that time, starting in 63 when the label was founded, so this must be a project they had been working on for some time. The track from that album we're going to hear is Follow Me, the great Lerner and Lowe composition from the musical Camelot. This is also going to feature some great writing by the fabulous Billy May, I'm sure you're aware Oh yeah, Billy is another great writer from that era. Really came to power in the 1960s, writing for Basie and Ellington and a lot of the studio bands on the West Coast. Yeah, really one of the hardest swinging of the arrangers. Very true. And of course, Billy May wrote for Sinatra in the 50s on Capitol. Correct. So this is really just a marvelous collaboration with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Duke, in this case, is a sideman. He's just playing piano on these Billy May arrangements. Uh, I bet that was very relaxing for him. Yes. The band is in great form, and of course, Sinatra, as usual, sounds phenomenal. So why don't we listen to this Learner and Low classic tune from Camelot. This is Follow Me, Frank Sinatra, and Duke Ellington. There's no horn section like the Ellington horn section. Should never die 
Where our long lost tomorrows Still are in the sweet by and by and Paul Gonzalez filling in the holes Tell it like it is. was Frank Sinatra with the Duke Ellington Orchestra from an album entitled Francis A. and Edward K. That was Lerner and Lowe's Follow Me from the musical Camelot and really just a tremendously swinging arrangement. Yeah, what a great chart on that tune. I like how Billy May uses the traditional assets of the Ellington band, you know, the great trumpet soloist, but he still makes it sound like Billy May, and it's got those nice open thirds. And he really sort of quotes some Ellingtonisms in the writing, right, which is I neat. imagine so, yeah. I caught a couple of those strayhorn harmonies in the saxophones mm-hmm. a couple times. And you pointed out nice saxophone playing by Paul Gonzalez there, as well as Cat Anderson doing some great growling on yeah. the trumpet. Yeah. His best Cootie Williams impression. Right. And I love that rhythm section. One of my favorite Ellington drummers was on that. That was Sam, Sam Woodyard. Sam Woodyard, I was going to yes, say. you can tell by that. You can driving. hear that bass drum, mm-hmm. yeah. He used that big, like, 30-inch bass drum. It sounds like it's a whole room into itself. And apparently the final session for this record was done on Frank's birthday. Oh, really? Yes. yes. December 12, 1967. Very nice. Well, we've had a lot of fun today. 
Our guest in the studio has been jazz trombonist and attorney George Carr. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed listening to these versions and getting a chance to listen to them a little more closely than I usually do. And that's what we like to do here on I've Heard That Song Before. We like to look at various interpretations of these great American songs. And today, we've had a lot of fun examining Kurt Vile's September song, and we really appreciate having you here, George. It is a remarkable tune, and I enjoyed being here. Well, all right. You've been listening to I've Heard That Song Before. I'm your host, Joe Hunter, and we'll see you next week. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget, and we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.